We're continuing, or we're headed back into the book of Genesis. We had taken a pause through the holiday season. And today we're in Genesis chapters 37 and 38. And with a cursory reading of these chapters, they may seem completely unrelated. But the truth is, these, these chapters are related in, in a number of ways. But, but what I want to focus on today is the beautiful truth that both chapters 37 and 38 I believe, illustrate. Now, if you've read these chapters, and if you're familiar with, with, the, with the chapters 37 and 38 in the book of Genesis, or if you're hearing it today for the first time after I tell you the stories of these two chapters, you may wonder why I would refer to them as beautiful. Because, in fact, they are two of the most uh, shockingly, in some ways, disgusting chapters in uh, the scriptures. Genesis chapter 37 begins with the painting of a very ugly family dynamic. This is a family that I believe at the beginning of chapter 37, they, the Bible tells us that they settled in the land of Canaan and Jacob has been sojourning for some time and I'm sure he's, he's wanting to have a season of peace in their family. He was hoping to, to dwell in peace and comfort. But, but Jacob does something right off the bat to ruin uh, this, this peace and this comfort. Jacob has a favorite son, his son Joseph. And due to this, this favoritism, there's a, there's a discord within the family. The Bible tells us that Jacob gave Joseph a coat. And your Bibles will say that it is a coat of many colors. But most, and even though that's what most of our Bibles said, the actual translation is it describing a coat with long sleeves. And this was symbolic. If you, were, if you had a coat with long sleeves, it was a symbol of, of authority. It was a symbol of your, of your status. It, it was a robe that symbolized that Jacob desired to place his son Joseph ahead of all his brothers that had been born before him. In a culture, in a culture in which so much value was placed on birth order, this was even more distressful and detrimental than it is in our modern society. We've been around families and we've been around people that, 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 that have grown up in homes in which there is jealousy between siblings, but, but this culture, it was even more so because birth order was very, very important. Well, the brothers see the coat and they perceive what it means. They understand what it means. Verse four tells us in Genesis chapter 37, when his brothers saw that their father loved him, that's Joseph, more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully of him. They could not speak peacefully of him or to him. This lack of peace is further exacerbated by Joseph having dreams. The Bible tells us that, that Joseph has a couple of dreams. Verse five, now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, the Bible says they hated him even more. Again, let's put our minds into the cultural context of this moment. They don't just hate him because of the content of the dreams, but they are not happy about the fact that he's even being given dreams of this nature. Having dreams was a was a divine sign of Joseph's spiritual blessing. We sometimes think it was just that they were annoyed by the fact that he was sharing the dreams, but, but they actually see what is going on. They see that, that Joseph is somehow being divinely blessed. 
When Joseph tells his brothers his dream, they are irritated and they hate him even more because they understand the meaning of this dream. They recognize the meaning of this dream is actually coming to fruition. Just to remind you, the first dream that Joseph had, Joseph dreamed that, that he and his brothers were out uh, uh, harvesting the wheat and they're bringing the sheaves together and Joseph puts his sheave together and all of a sudden Joseph's sheave rises up, it, it raises up, it straights, straightens up, and the other sheaves of the brothers come around his sheave and they bow down to it. The brothers, after hearing this dream, say in verse eight, are you indeed to reign over us? This question is not actually a question of doubt, but rather a, a, a question of antagonism. They understand, they perceive the meaning of the dream maybe even better than Joseph himself does. They see what is happening within their own family. They recognize the direction things are going. They see that Jacob is putting Joseph in charge of things. The Bible tells us in the beginning of chapter 37 that Joseph, that Joseph came to his father with a bad report about his brothers. In other words, he was already being given some authority over his brothers. Now God is giving him dreams and they perceive our father is putting Joseph in charge, God's putting Joseph in charge, and they understand the meaning of this dream even more than maybe Joseph himself. And they're bothered. And so, at some time in that whole process, his brothers decide when given the opportunity to thwart their father's plan. But not only do they decide to thwart their father's plan, but they also decide to thwart, to, to get in the way of God's plans as well. The brothers are out in the fields uh, tending to the sheep. And again, Joseph in his position of authority, his father sends Joseph out to check on the brothers. He says in verse 14 of chapter 37, so Jacob said to Joseph, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So Joseph goes out to check on his brothers. And after some time and some help, he finds his brothers. He sees them off in the distance, and they also see Joseph off in the distance. And the Bible tells us in verse 18 that the brothers saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. They understand what the dreams mean. They want to take God's plans. They want to take their father's plans and they want to say, oh yeah, check this out. Dad, you're putting Joseph in charge of us. Watch what happens when he's dead. God, you're giving him divine dreams about us bowing down to him. Let's see what happens when he is dead. See if any of these plans, any of, of your plans, your, your desired intentions can actually come to pass. But there's a brother, the oldest brother, Reuben, that isn't down, he's not okay with this idea of killing Joseph. And so he tries to spare his brother. He tries to spare his brother and he, he convinces his brothers to delay things a little bit. And, and so they throw him into a pit, into a well, till Reuben can figure something out. But when Reuben is away, the other brothers who now have Joseph in the well begin to plot again their murderous plans. But there is another brother a second brother who's also not okay with them killing their little brother. 
The second brother is Judah. And Judah decides that, that, that there's another option. He sees off in the distance a caravan coming. And, and, and he says, you know, brothers, it would be better for us to sell our brother into slavery than for us to actually kill him. I do think that Judah was trying to spare Joseph, but it was one of those moments in which he was saying, you know, my sin's not quite as bad as their sin, so, so this will actually make it a little bit better. We've had those moments as well. Someone does something to us or someone does something and we do something back and we say, well, ours wasn't quite as bad as theirs. It's a little bit better. My sin's a better option than their sin. We'll go with that. And so they sell this, they sell and they listen to uh, Judah, the Bible tells us, and they sell him into slavery. They slail him into slavery. The story of chapter 37 ends with the brothers sending Joseph's coat. They shredded it. They, they made it look all mangled and sending it ahead to their father and saying, we found this coat all shredded and bloody. Could this be Joseph's coat? And of course, they know that their father will recognize it and that he'll perceive his son to be dead. And he weeps and he mourns and the Bible tells us that his sons, who are the cause of this weeping and mourning, try to comfort him. They feign sadness. They feign support. And that's how chapter 37 ends. The story is ugly. It's a story of, of favoritism and, and jealousy and, and hatred and, and slavery and, and, and deceit. It is an ugly, ugly story. And yet, I have to say there's something beautiful about it. But before I get to the beautiful part of chapter 37, I want to tell you about an even more disgusting story, and that is chapter 38. Now, chapter 38 seems to be out of place, and there's some liberal scholars that, that believe that chapter 38 is a, is a later edition that someone just threw in there, and it doesn't really have a place in there. But I believe these two stories are connected, like I said, in more ways than one. But but this distasteful story seems to be an interesting addition. It doesn't involve Joseph's life at all. They start the Joseph story, then there's a pause, and then the Joseph story continues on. It doesn't seem to, to be interconnected, and yet the theme of it, the, the, the principle underlying it, I think, is what ultimately connects these. Judah, the brother who had convinced his brothers to sell Joseph, has moved away from his brother. One commentary suggests Judah maybe couldn't handle what he had done, what he had been a part of and his role in it. And so he moves away to try to start over, to start, to start fresh in things. And he moves away and he marries a woman by the name of, of Hira. And they have three sons. Much time has gone by now because the Bible tells us that these sons grow up. Judah Living, they're living amongst pagans, and so Judah wants to make sure that his son has the right woman. His oldest son marries the right woman. And so he goes out and he chooses a young lady for his son, Er, to marry. Her name is Tamar. But Er is wicked, the Bible tells us, and, and his wickedness leads to his death. But there's a problem. There's a problem with this. Again, in that culture, his death takes place before Tamar has children. And in that culture, a woman's value, a woman's value was in the fact that she had offspring. 
Just earlier in the, in, the, in the history of this family, we see Rachel and Leah fighting because they want more and more kids because they believe that shows their status, that raises their status, that raises their values in the eyes of others, but even more importantly, in the eyes of their own husband. But, but Er has died and Tamar has no children. So Onan, a second son of Judah, is told to marry Tamar. The reason for this was because also in that culture there was a rule, there was a, there was a law, there was a teaching that, that if, you, if, if a brother died and left a widow without children, then the next brother was to marry her so that she could have children. Very weird, let's all just acknowledge that. We can nod, very weird. But this was the culture. And so, so the brother, Onan, is, is told to marry Tamar because she needs to have children in honor of the brother. Now again, the cultural context of this is awkward because another aspect of this cultural component of things is that when one brother marries the widow of his other brother, when she has children, by that second husband, those children are not considered the biological father's children. In other words, all the property, all the status, all the value, all the, the wealth that goes along with all that goes to those children and the lineage of that first brother. They don't go to the biological father. And Onan understands this. In fact, in verse 38, or in verse 9 of chapter 38, Onan knew that his offspring would not be his, and so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the seed on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. The literal Hebrew here is that Onan destroyed to the earth. He, got, he destroyed to the earth. Now let me tell you why this was even more catastrophic than just a cultural, at a cultural level. Why this was even more catastrophic than just an emotional strain within their marriage. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible tells us something. The Bible tells us that when sin entered the world, there was a promise made that in a plan set in motion, that a divine seed would be placed, planted within humanity, and that that divine seed would be the Messiah and he would make all things right in the world. This was the promise way back at Genesis 3 and this is the plan and the focus that God is carrying out throughout history. And then we jump to the end of Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis and in Genesis chapter 49, we learn something else about that plan of God. We learn something else about, about God's desire and God's wish and we see a messianic prophecy. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, the Bible tells us the scepter shall not depart from Judah, that means from Judah's line, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. In other words, this is a messianic prophecy saying that out of the line of Judah will come the one that will rule over all people, and out of the line of Judah will be the one who fulfills the, uh, the requirements of the law to save humanity. This is a messianic prophecy saying that Judah is the line from which all this comes. So when, so when, 
So when Onan is, is doing what he is doing, he's not just thwarting the, the laws and the culture of the day. He's not just ignoring the laws and the culture of the day, but subconsciously, he's also opposing God's plans and interfering with God's plans. The Bible tells us because of Onan's evil, he is also laid to rest. Judah's first son marries Tamar. He is so wicked, he dies. Judah's second son marries Tamar. He is so wicked, he dies. Judah has a third son, and he's looking at the situation, he's saying, one son marries, dies. Second son marries, dies. Third son, we're gonna say he's too young to get married. So he tells Tamar, Tamar, my youngest son is not yet of an age where he can get married. So why don't you go back to your family, hang out with your family for a while, and then when he's older, I will give you my third son. He says this not with any real intention of actually ever giving his third son to Tamar, but just as a stall tactic. The Bible tells us that eventually, in chapter 38, that Tamar realizes that the son is of age and she is still not getting her third husband to provide her with the children that would give her some value within their society. And she sees that this is not happening. She sees that, that Judah is not sticking to his word. She sees that, that Judah is betraying the customs and the culture and the law of the land. And so at this point, if the story already was not awkward and weird and uncomfortable enough, it takes a turn that makes it even more gross and disgusting. Tamar decides, I'm gonna take things into my own hands and into my own control, and she learns her father-in-law is coming to town for the sheep shearing season. And she knows the road that he will take to get to town for the sheep shearing season. And so she removes her clothes of mourning. She would have worn certain garments in order to indicate that she was a widow. And she removes those. And instead she dresses as a temple prostitute. And she places herself near the side of the road in which she knows that Judah has to pass by. Now, Judah wasn't planning for this escapade. We know this because he did not have money to actually pay her for this escapade. But, but he falls into temptation. He sees something and he doesn't resist the temptation. He falls into the temptation. He sees this woman and the Bible tells us that he goes in and he sleeps with her, thinking she was a temple prostitute. This is an ugly and disgusting story. The Bible tells us that Tamar becomes pregnant. And Judah learned that she was pregnant too. Chapters 38, chapter 38, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah, being the oh-so-righteous man that he is, at least according to people think that he is, says in a very righteous, indignant way, bring her out. And let us burn her. This is not Hollywood. This is the Bible. Luckily for Tamar, though, she had thought ahead. I don't know if it's lucky or just whatever. But, but in her devious and sinful plan, she had thought ahead. And she had gotten a pledge. You see, Judah didn't have money to pay her. And she knew that. And so she said, I will trap him. I will figure out a way in order to trap him. And she got a pledge. 
with some of the items with some items from the man she slept in. He said, I can't pay you. She said, well, why don't you just leave some things with me until, until you can send me a payment. And he says, okay, I can do that. Eventually he goes to send her a payment and they can't find her. And Judah says to his servant, well, don't worry about it. Let's not make a stink about it. Let's not try to find her because I don't want to make a scene out of this and hurt my reputation. I don't want to hurt my reputation for my immorality, but I would like to burn my daughter-in-law for her immorality. It's kind of a, 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 some gray in there, I think. Um, but Tamar is planned. And so out comes Tamar. The, the Bible tells us literally that she is being brought out to be burned alive. And she says, oh, hold on. Can I, can I send a few things to my father-in-law? And she asks him, tell me if you know of whom these belong to. And what she sends to him is a signet ring, which has the signet of Judah upon him, a cord that is a symbol of that family, a staff which is a symbol of that family. They all belong to the man Tamar has slept with immorally. They all belong to the man who, who Tamar had been immorally impregnated by. They all belonged to her father-in-law, Judah. And Judah, we must say this is good that he did, spared Tamar. And not only does he spare her, but he admits that he was the one truly in the wrong. He was the more unrighteous one. Then verse 27 ends the story of chapter 28. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and then skipping down. And the first baby came, Perez, and afterward his brother named Zerah, and that is the ending of chapter 38, a disgusting story. A young woman impregnated by her father-in-law in an incestuous situation. Yet, I would say, there is a beauty in this. The reason I say there's a beauty in this, because these short stories show the lowest of humanity. They show humanity at their absolute worst. They show humanity, we mentioned Hollywood just a minute ago, they, they show scenes from humanity that if these were scenes in a movie, we would say, you know what, if you're going to watch this, you're going to watch it after you're out of my house, you're not going to watch it under my roof. This is not okay for you to watch in my home. They show scenes of humanity that, that, that the people at their lowest point, not in any way, shape, or form following the plans of God, and yet... If we think about it, we can see hope, we can see grace, we can see beauty in them. The beauty is in this. Not to ruin the rest of our sermon series, though you probably know, Joseph went on to be a ruler in Egypt. He goes to Egypt, he's a slave, but then he, he grows up and he becomes a ruler in Egypt. And it was through this relationship in Egypt, his power in Egypt, that God's people were spared, including Judah, who held the line of the Messiah, including the people of Israel who, who God used throughout history as, as a witness of his message and of his laws. And in chapter 38, the story ends with Tamar's life being spared and her having twins from incest, which we say is gross. But, but the twins that we read about in this story are also referenced in another part of your Bibles, in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, the Bible tells us this. 
Matthew chapter one and verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. By Tamar. The very first woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus is this woman that's in this scandalous plan and story. And these twins that were born out of that scandalous situation are are part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew. God said that the Messiah would come through the line of Judah. God said that the the plan would, would be this. And at one level, you see the beauty in both of these stories is that that God's plan of salvation moves forward. And we're so grateful for that. I'm so personally grateful for that. But to me, there is another level of beauty. And this is is more at a a personal level. Maybe it's because I've been such a, a tremendous sinner in my life. And I don't say tremendous in a good way. I just have a unique skill at it. And maybe some of you do as well. And I look at my life and I, and I know I've made decisions many times that were God's, not God's first option for my life. It's funny sometimes when I tell my story about my journey and the things that I've done in my life and, and people will say, man, God allowed you to go through all of that stuff so that you could relate to others. And I'm like, no. God didn't want any of that for my life. I made stupid decisions. I avoided God's plan and, and these things happened. The same way I read in these, in, these, in these stories. Now think about this, maybe to understand this more. And I ask you this question before you answer it necessarily in your, in your heart. Think carefully before you answer. When you read chapters 37 and 38, do you see God's plans being carried out? I don't see them at all. I don't see God's plans at all. Joseph later says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I've heard many people then teach that everything that happened was part of of God's plan. But y'all, that is errant theology. That is errant theology. If what we read in chapter 37 and 38 was God's plan, then God's plan was for a father to love some children more than others. And I don't think that's the God we serve. If, if what we read in chapter 37 and 38 is part of God's plan, then, then, then God says, you know what? I'm going to encourage you to sin and sell your brother into slavery. I'm going to encourage you to, to have lust in your heart and to sleep with this woman that you don't know that turns out to be your daughter-in-law. I'm going I'm to place in your heart this, this, this hatred for your brother, and you, you have murderous devisings of plans. What Joseph was saying is that God took the mess that you as humanity made, that you as humanity caused, and that the devil intended to destroy my people, and by grace, I can still make it beautiful. Chapters 37 and 38 are so beautiful to me because I see a bunch of people not following God's plan A, not following God's first option for their life, not following God's second option for their life, not following God's 
third option for their life at all. Yet God is so intent on saving humanity, he works with the mess. Yes, even the sinful mess, and somehow continues to move forward to save. The text we read today said Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. What is the joy set before him? Your salvation and my salvation. God finds joy in the salvation of his people. God finds joy in the salvation of all humanity. And he says, no matter what kind of mess you've made, no matter what kind of mess you're in, there is a joy in my heart when you say yes to me. And so I'll work with the mess that you give me because I find joy in your salvation. You may be in the greatest mess right now that you've ever been in in your life. Someone might be watching who's in the greatest mess that they're ever in in their life. And you may be thinking, I am so lost. I can never be saved. I don't even understand what this preacher is saying. Some of you may say, there's no way out for me. You know what Jesus is doing while we're thinking to ourselves that we've made such a mess there's no way out for us? He's saying option one didn't work. Let's try option two. Option two didn't work. Let's try option three. Option three didn't work. Let's try option four. Four, five, six, seven. God's saying, I'm gonna keep lining up options because the joy of my life is the salvation of my people. It wasn't God's plan in chapter 37 and 38. God's plan was beautiful. Humanity made it a mess. And God said, I still want to save you. Let me close with a story. I heard the late Morris Vinden share this story years and years ago at camp meeting. When I was still a heathen kid that sat in the back of the church with my pants below my behind and my hair spiked and and a chain on my wallet and my belt so that I, because so, you know people are thieves at camp meetings, so I want to make sure they didn't steal my wallet. And, uh, but I loved Morris Vinden's stories. I always thought he was a great storyteller. And I remember sitting in the back of this camp meeting and hearing this story being told by Morris Vinden. Morris Vinden told about early in his ministry, he was a, a Bible teacher in the Northwest. And, and he would, he, his hero, Morris Vinden's Morris Vinden's hero was HMS Richards. And HMS Richards was a great preacher that died in 1983 and a great preacher of grace and the good news of Jesus. And he was Morris Vinden's hero. And so Morris Vinden would, would tell stories to his class all the time about HMS Richards. And he would, he would share anecdotes with his students all the time about HMS Richards to try to help them to understand the love and the grace and the, and the message of Jesus. And the kids would listen to the stories and they would soak up the stories in this class. And they always seemed to love to hear more and more stories of HMS Richards. And they loved his little anecdotes. HMS Richards had a, had a, had a, had a, a quirk to him. One lady asked him one time, uh, how do you feel about women wearing makeup? And he said, if the barn needs painting, paint it. And uh, so he had these, types of, he had these types, of, types of things that he would say, and, and they loved these little, these little quips of HMS Richards, and, 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 and uh, Morris Vinden loved to share them. And the kids in class would just soak these up. There was a young man in class, and we'll call him Brian, and the reason we call him Brian is because I can't remember what HMS Richards actually said his name was. But Brian, an elder, or not what Elder Vinden says his name was, but Brian and Elder Vinden had a good relationship, and, and, and they had a good connection, and he enjoyed listening to the stories about HMS Richards. But, but Brian did what, what far too many have done. He never really actually committed his life to Jesus and he, he walked out of that class and out of that school without having, making, having made that choice for Jesus. 
And before long, he began to make choices that took his life into what we would describe as a mess. He, he, he made choices that separated him from his family. He made choices that pushed God further and further away. He destroyed relationships. He was destroying his body, and, 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 and he was just a mess, and he was miserable. Eventually, Brian was drafted into the military, as many were at that time. And in, mil, in the military, his 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 decisions just became worse. What he was doing before, stateside, just grew even more as he was in the military. Brian was eventually stationed in Germany, and he had begun to contemplate the idea of taking his own life. He, he felt that as he looked at his life, he said, my life is such a mess. There's no value to it. There's no purpose for it. Now I'm in the military, and, and, I, and I don't even want to be here. And he, he he was just full of guilt and full of regret. He said, I have no relationships and no one will miss me. Why don't I just take my own life? One night, Brian left the base and, wanting, uh, and he went out and wanting to kind of drown his sorrows. He did what he often did and he just drank and he drank and he drank. And this night he drank so much that he couldn't even get back to, ba to base. And eventually he passed out in the gutters in the streets of Germany in his own vomit. The next morning he woke up and realizing what had happened and looking at himself, seeing himself laying there in his own mess, he sat up on the curb and he decided that that day was gonna be the last day of his life. He said, this is it. His mind wasn't clear. He was, he was super depressed and angry. And at that moment, some people were passing by him on the street and an individual in the group of people stopped and they put their hand on Brian's shoulder and they said, soldier, are you okay? And Brian just indifferently said, yeah, I'm fine. But this man said to him, hey, why don't, why don't you let me get you some food? And Brian, before he knew it, not even fully recognizing what was happening, was up and was following this group of people down the street. The man that had spoken to him kind of fell back and said to, to Brian, look, I have to stop by and meet with some people really quick at this place. Why don't you come with me and then afterwards, we can get some breakfast. And so Brian followed this man blindly, not even paying attention where he was and, and just kind of still contemplating how, how this was the last day of his life. And he followed this man right down the road and into this building and, and they walked into this building and they walked towards the front of the room and the man said to him, sit here and I'll be right back. So Brian sat down on the front row. And when the people began to sing, Brian's mind suddenly cleared up. It was the first time he kind of realized what was happening. And although he didn't recognize the words, he recognized the tune. And suddenly he realized that he was in a room with a bunch of religious folk. And he thought to himself, I've got to get out of here. He looked at himself, I'm a mess. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in this place. And he began to think and plan, how can I get out of here? And that's when he realized, I'm on the front row. What am I doing on the front row? He wanted to run. Then a man got up and he began to introduce to the congregation the speaker for the day. And although Brian didn't understand the words that the man was saying as this man introduced the speaker, he understood one thing, HMS Richards. And the man who had invited Brian to breakfast, the man who had placed his hand on the shoulder of Brian on that curb, the man who had said, why don't you just come with me and then I gotta meet with some people and then when I'm done, we can go and get some food together, was the speaker and it was HMS Richards. And Brian remembered 
in that moment, the stories from the class with Morris Vinden. And in that moment, he knew that the Lord loved him. He knew that the Lord loved him. Y'all, that is the beauty of salvation. That is the beauty of our Savior. Did God plan and push Brian into being passed out drunk in his own vomit in the streets of Germany? Did God push Brian into to not making a decision when he was in high school, but, but, but making choices that just were destroying his life and his relationship? Did he encourage him to sit there for a little bit longer on the curb and to plan his own death and his own suicide? No, God did not intend for any of those things. I'm sure that God wanted to save Brian back when he was in high school, but God said, even if he didn't accept me then, I still wanna save him today. And Brian didn't go with God's plan. God, Brian didn't go with God's first option. And so God said, he didn't go with my first option. I'm gonna set up a second option. He didn't go with my second option. I'm gonna set up a third option. He didn't go with my third option. I'm gonna set up a fourth option. He's in Germany. He's passed out drunk on the streets. Guess who else is in Germany? HMS Richards. And maybe he'll say yes to me this time. Because the joy that caused me to endure the cross is a salvation of that man. The joy that God, that Jesus allowed himself to endure the cross is the joy of your salvation. What is your mess? What is your mess? It's time to lay it aside today and say, God, whatever mess I've made, I want you to be in charge of my life. You didn't follow option one? God's not saying, well, you gotta wait a little longer. You didn't follow option two? God's not saying, too late. You didn't follow option three? Three strikes, you're out. God says, I come up with a different option because I wanna save you. No matter what the mess. Jesus is here in this moment to save. So whatever your hangup is, whatever truth you struggle with, whatever decisions you've made, whatever your mess is, let it be and let Jesus save you and experience the joy of salvation and give joy to the heart of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are God that loves us so much you find so much joy in our salvation that you look at the mess that we made and rather than saying, I'm done with you, you say, let me come up with a different plan. Let me come up with a different option. Then we make a mess of that sometimes and you say, let's go with option C. Let's go with D and on through to the end of the alphabet. Lord, I thank you that you are a God that longs to save. Save each of us in this room right now, Lord. Let no one leave here without making a decision. I don't know what decision maybe they're making, but I will not leave here without saying, Jesus, I need you and I want you in my life. In your name I pray, amen.